Welcome to the Business of Psychology podcast, the show that helps you to reach more people, help more people, and build the life you want to live by doing more than therapy. Today I'm talking to James Waterhouse. Some of you may recognise James's voice if, like me, you cling to your youth by listening to Radio 1 when you're in the car, as he is a broadcast journalist for the BBC. He has had a pretty interesting personal story, which I'm going to let him tell, uh, but he's now on a mission to get more psychologists talking in the media. So welcome to the podcast, James. Thank you, Rosie. It's, it's great to be on. Can you start by telling us a bit about your background and how you got to where you are now? So I um, went I'll, I'll, I went to study psychology. Um, which is about as much uh, as far as it goes in terms of what you and I have in common. Uh, <laughs> I it really difficult. Uh, I scraped to two two. I averaged fifty over my three years. I just found the statistics, the neuroscience, so difficult. Um, the developmental side, I remember being interesting, but um, I guess what poses a broader question about what uni gave me, I can't remember anything apart from Pavlov's dog and a couple of other bits and pieces. Um, so in light of my grades, all I really cared about at that age was playing rugby. And mm. was playing rugby. I signed a professional deal for Rotherham in my second year and then went and played with them for a couple of years. Then my rugby journey took me to Plymouth uh, uh, and, uh, and then I finished semi-professionally in Surrey for a team called Isha. It was there that I, my chairman there was a guy called John Inverdale, which who people may know presents Wimbledon, Six Nations on the BBC bit of a broadcasting legend he's on five live and i tried a load of different jobs there and didn't really know what i wanted to do at 25 and he suggested i did a postgrad diploma in broadcast journalism judging on the conversations we'd had i did exactly that and then i went and freelanced in in local radio and so i went from there and wow so that is quite an unusual journey i mean you've massively played it down there but i think there's a lot of people listening be like right so bummed around at uni a bit, became a professional rugby player, as you do, and then sort of landed in broadcast journalism, that well, job which many people sweat for many years to try and get into. It's very kind of you to say. I think I, I do find it kind of, I don't find it awkward to talk about myself in that way. I think a lot of people do, and I used to a lot, um, but we do still sometimes ad- adopt an apologetic tone. Mm. Um, okay, I think I worked hard at it. I threw everything at it. Um, and it's only now that I probably feel on, a, on an even enough plane to kind of, you know, actually feel a bit more settled and, and confident in my, in my ability. Um, but yeah, it's, 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 I'm very sort of binary in that sense. I think once, when it was rugby, it was all on that. When it was broadcast journalism, I just fixated on climbing the tree there. But no one told me just how slow progress can be in this industry, uh, especially times like now, because it's just so competitive. Mm-hmm. So you need to kind of let go of the kind of comparisons and everything else and and just kind of make sure you get what you need out of your career and don't worry about that too much else. Yeah, because I must admit, obviously broadcast journalism is not something I know a huge amount about, but I do know that you need a lot of drive to succeed in that area. So where where is your drive in journalism? Um, that's a very good question. Uh, I guess to start with, it was fear of failure. It was this possible, possibly irrational fear of just giving this a go, you know, convincing my dad at the time to give pay, you know, pay 10 grand for me to go on this year long course. Um, and then just ending up on the scrap heap. Uh, and then actually when you're in there, it became about trying to impress my peers. You know, like I work, work with some really good editors over the years and reporters, producers, everyone else that you sort of learn off on the way. And it was then, I think the way I'm programmed was, if you think about that team environment, was, okay, well, this is me, and actually this is what I'm going to bring, and mm. you're going to value me for that. Um, whereas now, I get to sort of enjoy journalism in a more purist sense, in, in that I actually quite like telling, telling stories. I like being creative. I like trying to break some rules. And those stories themselves, you like, you, you like to be as distinctive as possible, giving ordinary people a bigger voice, you know, and, and, and that's where the buzz comes from, really, when you sort of build relationships and, you know, so I remember doing over the pandemic at the peak, you know, I built a relationship with this large undertakers, this family run undertakers, and they gave me full access to sort of everything they had to deal with in those times during the height of, you know, the death rate was so high and the, what they were dealing with. And, 
you know, we made a really moving, tasteful uh, series of films for, for BBC News. And, you know, we still talk today and, and everything else. So it's, it's, it's good. It's, um, so that's where the buzz comes from. And it's nice to show off. You know, it is <laughs> anyone that says that, any reporter, anyone who's on air says they don't, don't quite believe. But you know, I, I love running out and playing in front of crowds, varying in size, I would say. Um, but I like that buzz and, you know, broadcasting gives you that chance as well, whether you're sitting on set and it's all shiny and there are cameras and you've got to put blusher quite high up on your forehead to stop you shining or you're out in the field and it's all going off behind you in a, in a big protest on Whitehall and you've got a camera pointing at you. So I always need those little buzzes, those little rushes and, and the variation. Yeah, I suppose the adrenaline kind of follows you through this career journey. Um, but also there's something there about building relationships and kind of providing that mouthpiece for people, which I think when you said, you know, we don't have anything in common other yeah. than, you know, an undergraduate degree in psychology, which as an aside, I don't have. <laughs> so you've probably done more. You've probably really? done more Am I more qualified, Rosie? That- yeah, no, so I'm qualified, but I got a um, postgraduate diploma. So I went a slightly yeah. odd route, which maybe I'll do a podcast about if you need any you know any tips psychologically <laughs> then you know holler I know where to go yeah um but I do think the the motivations are actually fairly similar in both of those really? careers and I also recognize and I think a lot of people listening will recognize that starting your career from a place of fear of failure and then as you get more secure and more established bringing in all that creativity and all that relationship building and, and the stuff that drives you forward now yeah that's interesting and it doesn't happen overnight either mm. i think that's no, it can't. people ask me now for any kind of advice i say there's nothing you can bypass you're not just going to suddenly you know be in the moment and <laughs> you know doing all the basics right from the off it just doesn't work like that absolutely yeah I think that's really good advice so thinking about it why are you now so interested in getting psychologists to appear in the media well our mutual friend Danielle kind of but we've been talking about this for years and she's sort of been been nagging me about it so we studied together at the University of Sheffield undergrad and she's gone on to do what you've done and is now a successful doctor and the issue what she has she was seeing online conversations with your peers which was frustrations with the psychologists that tend to appear on radio telly regardless of the slot uh, and she would send me these screen grabs and it was something I could identify with in that there is this perceived conflict between having someone who is a good what we call in as journalists is a, a good voice someone who's relatable who passes on seemingly good advice versus someone who might be academically more qualified more experienced um because they can't get their their, their message across clearly enough with me you know we as reasons you've just t- you know we've talked about in the past like mental health is so central has been for a while will continue to be so in these times in terms of threads and different stories and everything else there will always be a need for that voice of reason that expert input that solutions element of storytelling where you sort of say here we have you know dr danielle on why what you can do to ease your problems or what's your analysis of this or speaking to the audience because they need that interact they need that reassurance Mm. news outlets on their own rely on that rely on that kind of input so we put together a, a webinar with a you know a small sample of people that included yourself and and you know it sort of struck me how collectively all of you wanted to kind of improve public messaging um in fact i, I suspect some of you wanted to kind of plug yourselves but actually no you you are actually you know you you, you really want to make you know, the online, the on-air world, a better place with better advice. And also, you know, it is win-win. For me, it's a source of stories, decent con- contributors. And for you, it's a, it's a it's personal PR for your private practice. So it's, it seemed like a really good thing to kind of do. And, you know, we did, the, we did our session. I think, you know, we talked about it. You enjoyed it. I got a lot out of it, actually. It was really interesting to hear the discussion we did about, because we went through examples, didn't we? And then we did some pretty on-the-spot role play. 
Yeah, um, which was brilliant, by the way. And really, very, good. very valuable because nothing, nothing else I've done quite recreates um, the pressure of an actual journalist's voice. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> Asking yeah. questions you're not prepared for—that's yeah. everybody's fear. So to drill that, I think, is really, really helpful. Yeah, I mean, and, and since that session, I worked with one of the group um, who had an appearance this week. Um, Fantastic. We did like we did, we did a one-on-one tuition. Um, and again, it was the kind of rehearsing with them, you know, and, you know, getting them to listen to the program before they're on it. You know, mm. so it's like when you the advice you give me when they're practicing for an exam, you know, if you can go sit in the exam hall, I remember getting told that at school, it totally takes the edge off because what, what I, we come from opposite ends of the spe- or opposite ends of the spectrum. As a journalist, I have to be an expert overnight. So if I have a, an issue on, student loans or you know, whatever issue is going on I then have to sometimes have as little as half an hour to an hour to get what we call across the story you know what's going on what politicians said in the past what case studies have we got what are the broader issues here as psychologists you already know your stuff and you know it inside out for you it's the performance element and that includes presenting yourself well and distilling your message and simplifying it for a broad range of people and that was the clear exercise that we wanted to focus on yeah, and I think that is a real challenge for us because almost in our training, we're taught to do the opposite because I mm. remember turning up as a, a trainee clinical psychologist. And again, people might be shocked. I will at some point do a podcast about this. But mm. at that point, I'd never actually met a clinical psychologist. <laughs> um, so I didn't know how they spoke. And suddenly I met a room full of people mm-hmm. who all knew how to speak this language I didn't understand. Um and and some of the words are made up. They're just not bad. They're not good English. They're very bad grammar. Yeah, irritating. <laughs> yeah, and I, I didn't get it. But I think you have to learn to play the game to get up the ladder. So over three years, I spent time learning yeah. how to how to speak in less plain English. And did you do that off your own back? You do with clients. It sounds like you did it off your own back when you first embarked to be a clinical psychologist. And now you've had to like reverse the yes. learnings that you did. Yeah, exactly. So in order to, you know, pass exams, pass vivas, that kind of thing, I had to learn to do it a little bit. I think I, I, you know, I got feedback quite often that I didn't quite do it enough. Um, and then in the clinical space, when you're actually with a client, you're doing the opposite. You're speaking as plainly as you can. You're trying to connect with that person. And it's almost like we need to remember that when we're engaging with the media, it's the client voice we want to use. It's the voice you would naturally use every time you speak to a real human being one-on-one. And what frustrates me is I know that all psychologists and therapists have those two voices at their disposal. Um, Because you'd be terrible as a therapist if you were speaking in this kind of convoluted, intellectualized way. And you're not just talking to normal people. You're talking to people under duress you know who mm. are you know in, in a real difficult space so so all the more important yeah and I know everybody listening to this can do it because you just wouldn't you wouldn't last very long especially not in private practice who would want to come back if you were talking yeah. in those kind of like intellectual terms all the time but something happens to us when we're put under pressure where suddenly we like spit out a thesaurus <laughs> Um, and it's just learning value you sort of say look I know my shit so here's you know actually if you look at here's a big word and citing it and whatever else yes it's understandable but cops do it as well like I think you know if I ever wanted to take a a higher paid job as a press officer you know in in a in a police force and yet we still have and I get it you're dealing with people that are institutionalized you know it's it's a long you know, people tend to be police officers for the, for the whole of their careers. And we will chat off air on a police cordon. We're chatting around, like, okay, can you, just, can you just do some, we just want to find out what the latest is, lines of inquiry, any suspects, da, da, da. And they're like, yeah, short, totally, you know, talking to me normally, everything else. And then they sort of stand up, you know, shoulders tense, arms crossed, like, well, you know, the incident happened at 0600. Mm. Uh, we are, you know, we urge members of the public. And I get they have to present as police officers, but, if you're talking about telly or even radio like they're being introduced as a police officer they're going to be in a police uniform you know the audience don't need to then hear 
internal speak. It's the same with the armed forces when we've done stuff with them. You have to well, I was going to say, yeah, my husband is armed done. forces. Who is, sorry? My husband oh, is right. well, the Navy. And I was literally going to come back and say, yes, I know this because you can yeah. predict exactly what they're going to say. And me and my husband, when he's home, we'll often do that. If they have a spokesperson on the telly, we'll be like, he's going to say this word, he's going to say this word, he's going to say this word, and oh, it isn't wow. going to mean anything. <laughs> yeah, exactly. It's sounding like I know what I'm doing. Uh, <laughs> telling, explaining a lot. You know, it's, it's politician-esque, isn't it? You know, there yeah. are ministers who are the masters of that. They can, they can come on and just filibuster. Yeah, absolutely. So if that's some of the mistakes that we often make when we come on in this kind of expert position, and there's a lot we could unpack about expertise, and we're all very insecure about that, as you know. But when we do decide we're going to come on and we're going to be an expert, what makes a good expert from a journalist's point of view? Someone who, um, the, the, big, the biggest thing is someone that gets the audience. You know, we, we frame everything, we, we put all our energy into framing it around the audience. And if you have a contributor, certainly an expert who gets that too, then it's brilliant. And it's, it's a bit nuanced. It's not someone that comes in and goes like, yeah, totally, sounding really commercial, on message, da, da, da. It's just someone who can bridge the gap between being themselves and being themselves on broadcast. Um, and so, you know, we've, we've done, so we, I mean, at Radio One, we had a, uh, we had a careers advisor who, and you've got to flag up. She did run, she does run a successful podcast on the side. So she's already doing the broadcasting like you. Um, but for us, she was target age. She must be like mid to late twenties and knew her stuff. And she sounded dead personable. Um, so we ended up doing a separate kind of news podcast on the side with her and people were coming in with questions, whatever else. And she was just seamless. You know, she would be conversational and chatting with the presenter. There's a little bit of banter, but, you know, it was natural. It was organic. I hate nothing more than planned, constructed banter. You know, trying There to is planned it. banter. So sometimes I've worked in programmes, which I won't name, where there will be in the scripting, like, you know, how's your week- weekend? And no, I'm not talking about X, Y, Z, you know. It just, it, and I'm sort of seeing this script. I'm like, oh no, oh no. And then it, it sounds as bad as it reads. You know, it just oh, doesn't I work. Like, you know, like, and, and we're thinking that. What are the audience going to be thinking? Um, but that's the, I always think of that careers advisor. Uh, but if they can kind of hone, it's the ability to speak directly to the audience. So they're sort of like chatting with the presenter. So and so asks the question. They reference, for example, Sarah. So, well, Sarah, you know, I totally demonstrate empathy i totally hear what you're saying you don't know what you want to do next as a career you know there are options here then demonstrating the knowledge and then bringing it back to the person they're speaking to and i think that always stands out and you just sound more polished as well and the number of times i say don't look at your notes or don't think you know it you know like this this is a this is someone who's paid to be a careers advisor so she knew it she was totally at ease with that you know mm-hmm. and, and the level of detail you'll need to go in for all programs will be a fraction of what you know. So you, that's where you take your great comfort from. Yeah, and I guess it's almost, it's almost like if somebody isn't nervous, they will do that naturally. Because yes. it's like, you know, if you're sat next to somebody in a sofa and there's nobody watching, you'd have that conversation. It would be seamless, of course. But it's almost like something happens to us sometimes when there's a lot of people in the room and you're aware that you're being listened to and that just puts that barrier up. And I guess a lot of us that, um, you know, work with evolutionary psychology and compassion-focused stuff will be thinking like, yes, literally parts of your brain that you need in order to really connect with the audience, with the presenter, to be funny, um, that you need to even pull out some of your knowledge. Mm. It can get switched off if we go into this fight, flight, or freeze mode. Makes total sense, yeah. And when I think about when I've really cocked up (laughs) in my life, it's been because I haven't had any of my faculties uh, online. I've just been, you know, panicking, shaking, sweating, not really thinking at all. It's almost like you can win the battle straight away by just calming down and switching on your parasympathetic nervous system. (laughs) Right. I mean, I have no idea what that is. (laughs) Basically, do some deep breathing. It's the... um, Yeah. relaxed connection state 
Um, well, it's fairly obvious, isn't it? You, you know, you, you, it's, it's that familiarity which we've discussed and then and just trying to calm yourself down and just mm-hmm. reassure and, you know, like for me, and I know it's deeply personal, I, I even kid myself, but I nevertheless believe it, that I have an expectant audience. So mm-hmm. I remember being on a quiet late shift and all of a sudden the news at 10 needed someone to talk about a story about a pensioner death in hospital. And so within 20 minutes, I realised I'd be sitting next to Fiona Bruce on set at 10 o'clock, millions of people watching. And I was cacking it, you know, like you could just feel, you know, that sort of thin dust of sweat. (laughs) It just doesn't stop. So you're not dripping, but you're sort of constantly moist. And uh, (laughs) I had to go to, um, I texted an old boss. I was like, I'm just, I'm 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 getting across the story. That bit I'm okay with. I have a knack to kind of get, absorb stuff very quickly and then forget it soon after. Um, and then she just sort of said, just get your shit together. And I said, oh, then fine, yeah, fine. They've asked me to go on, let's get in, fine. Yeah, it's fine. They've, they've already done that bit. I've, I've had the endorsement and then just pump, revved myself up. That's not going to be good for everyone, I stress. Mm-hmm. But it just for me, it just got me back to that kind of like, right, walking out into an expectant crowd and then deliver it. You know, plant your feet, sit down, answer the question, get offset, you know, and then you do it. And it just, you just do what you need to do. And I need that kind of almost crippling pressure to kind of steady my ship, which is why I'm in the mm. career I'm in. Um, mm. But I don't think I, would, I don't think anyone listening, you know, very few even will get to the stage where they're sort of doing so many, so much media and it will happen that they will be totally relaxed before they go on. It is good to have that kind of, I'm on my, I'm on my toes. I'm in a slightly heightened state, but let's be clear. You might be asking the questions, but I'm in control of what I'm saying you know yes yeah it reminds me actually of um the best advice i was ever given before an exam which was to remember that i was still me and that i still had my head on my shoulders yeah so even if i didn't know the answer i would be able to work out something to write and i, I think of that in every situation where i'm getting so nervous i can feel myself yeah up. it's like no 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 you're still you you still do know things and i like what you said there about you've had the endorsement yeah. You, wouldn't, you wouldn't be there if you weren't qualified to be there. Trust somebody else has made that judgment. Um, because your imposter syndrome is going to tell you that you don't That's belong awful. there. It's awful. inevitable. You know, I've, I've come out of interviews with politicians and, or job interviews at BBC where you sit in front of a panel and get scored out of four for each answer. And I've generally said, like, oh, you're a journalist? Like, you I just don't. That was horrendous, you know. And then you dust off and... You know, in the, I think for anyone sort of embarking on dipping their toe in media for the first time or saying yes to a few offers and everything else, it is going to be slight. It's going to be attritional in the sense that you're going to have to take feedback, and whether that's from yourself, or you're going to go look back, listen, or watch those recordings. Mm. It's going to be horrible to watch yourself, but you get used to that, and then you're like, "Oh, that's me. That's how I sound." I now don't think twice about it. Um, what did I do well? That was good. Yeah, it's almost always worse in your head so you come off and think oh my god i hesitated i oomed, i ah'd, don't know as a listen it's fine no one is swerving their cars on the radio going like what the <laughs> hell is going on here you didn't know anything you know um so it, but it is that kind of and also going up to someone you respect who doesn't mince their words and saying can i just get your thoughts on this i remember going up to you know victoria derbyshire and works on that program and i asked her you know, I've been up all night shooting on a legalised red light district in Leeds. I mean, you know, like, just really worked hard to turn this piece around, da-da-da, and then, you know, Victoria's walking through the newsroom. I said, so can, um, can I get some feedback? I just want to know what you thought of the piece. So, can I be honest? I was just kind of disappointed. And it wasn't so much with the film. She in the open newsroom, which is fine. I didn't ask to go anywhere private. Um, but it was the way I'd introduce the film. So the way, what we call a top line, or, you know, the way you frame it for the audience. Is it the most current angle, everything else? And she was right. She was dead on. And I learned that in the future. But my God, you know, at the time, you sort of have to, you just got to wear it. You're like, okay, yeah, that's fine. Yeah, I mean, I have been up all night, but it's fine, you know. But, oh, that yeah. sounds so painful. And she's, she's such a hero. <laughs> yeah, she's formidable. Yeah, she's sort of. Journalist first, presenter second, you sent. But it's kind of, um, in her mind, it's, it's, I did learn a lot. Mm, and I think part of it 
seems to be accepting that you will have to go through a bit of pain that you are probably going to be quite uncomfortable you won't always be proud of what you've done but you will have probably done some good by doing it i i think i challenge you on that i think you'd be proud in the end if you've done a bit of good you're going to be good in the end a a couple of people i've worked with psychologists they have been slightly unnerved by the bite back some have had in their mind well some people disagreed on twitter da 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 you go and look at the thread and it's three people. You know, well, like, welcome to the arena. You're in it. And, you know, you will get to a stage now where you're going to feel totally fine engaging with people. Maybe you won't get there overnight, but hone it back in is what you just said there. You're, you're doing a bit of good. The more we get good psychologists on air in the times we are in, that's what we're here for. And as a byproduct, if you're plugging your private work, that relates to getting more business for you, then great. Why not? Why would you not do that? Yeah, I think often there can be some kind of complicated issues around shame and I shouldn't really be plugging myself. And, you know, I I think people often do get really hung up on that stuff. But if your mission involves kind of getting out these messages to more people who don't know them, that they're not coming across a psychological way of thinking very often, then why not you? Why not you be the spokesperson for it? I, I, I like the point about you're in the arena as well. I use um, that Teddy Roosevelt quote quite a lot. And I know Brené oh. Brown uses it all the time. Uh, it's like, you know, you don't need to respect the feedback of people that won't get into the arena. And when I see all of the bitching and sniping about some of the psychologists that do do this stuff, um, and they don't always get it perfect. They don't always say exactly what you'd say if you were, you know, practicing in front of your mirror at home. But they've said a damn sight more than I have. So I'm not going to judge them for it. And I think if we treated our, each other with that compassion, if we could see, you know, you, that was a difficult day. And they said something which probably helped. It probably did yeah. more good than it did harm. Then maybe if we treated other people in that way in our minds we treat ourselves a bit more like it too it's a, it's a nice ideal and I, I i echo your your wishes for that to ever happen but it, it won't no it won't it won't you know people need a counterpoint yeah absolutely so this is about being clear on why you're doing it and what you want to get across on a basis of a lifetime of study and qualifications and experience mm. And also you are going to have to ask people who aren't in the arena for feedback because it's not, mm-hmm. maybe it's not about those psychologists in on Facebook who love to hate. That's going to happen. Yeah. Sodom doesn't matter. It is about, you know, your auntie Margaret who, you know, might've caught you on GMT uh, on this morning as she was doing her ironing. Oh, can I just ask, did you, did I make sense there? And then, and that's the one that it cuts through. She's like, oh, to be honest, I didn't, I, I, I didn't I, you lost me a bit there whatever else they might be right they might be wrong then you go and ask someone else different age you might have watched or you know and they might have a different view but it's about cherry picking and thinking right okay well if they thought that maybe I could have been clearer there but pretty happy with that you know you'll always be critiquing but the, the, the ideal is that you do it on your terms and you get to actually start to enjoy it mm. who doesn't want to be asked about what they know about <laughs> well <laughs> I think it's kind of difficult to imagine enjoying in some ways um but I believe you that you would get to a point where you've got to, you would... got to Rosie like and I you know like you will one day like, and, and I say that with 100% empathy because I, I it's through my job as well that I had to do it for the first time and I remember when I was at college and the lecturer said the first time your fader goes up in that radio bulletin the red light comes on your mouth's going to be dry. Your heart is going to, you know, it's going to be going about 140. Um, and it's about steadying the ship. And then eventually, you're just, you're just, I'm just going to do a bulletin now. Or I'm going to go do some live telly now. I remember walking on set for the first time. It's all air conditioned. Just equipment everywhere. There's lights. And it's just, it's just what I call furniture. But it is still the basic premise of you sitting down, sticking my phone, and I'm just going to talk. And then you're going to get off. It's, yeah. it's, it's easier said than done, but it's, you've got to get the experience in it. And I think, you know, personally, I don't feel that nervous if I can kid myself that nobody's ever going to hear it. So doing stuff like podcasts, I've done quite a bit of radio. 
Um, I do a lot of like Facebook lives, webinars, that kind of thing. Yeah, I don't yeah. feel any nerves whatsoever. I mean, a little bit, you know, the energy you need, but I don't really get nervous. And so people often think I, I would be absolutely fine with a TV appearance. But I know that lights, makeup, people buzzing around, I'd be like, oh, no, I can't talk. No, it's gone. It's departed. <laughs> the audience, I mean, it's, to me, that's bonkers. You look at all the stuff you're doing. I mean, this, you know, Daniel told me about this podcast. And, you, you know, you, I, remember, I remember you when you're on the course and you're telling about your sort of apprehensions of going on TV. And, and you, it's all there for you. It's just the kind of, you know, it's just, a, it's, it's just kind of, as I say, bridging that gap. And there is, like it or lump it, there is an element of presentation and you've got to, if you're on telly, you got to look good. You got to look to what you, you know, what you're comfortable in, but also match match the topic you're talking about. Mm. Um, and and because you've already got the content, that's the nice bit. So this is we're just talking about aesthetics here, and little little and you know, little ad- adaptations you can put in your performance and the way you speak and everything that we, that we talked about. Yeah, and one thing I did notice, like since our training, I, I've been watching quite a few appearances that people have made and going back and watching some high profile people and, and what they tend to say in different places. And one thing I've picked up is that people tend to have a core message. They tend to have something that they are so comfortable with talking about that not that it sounds boring, but it sounds very similar in lots of different situations so maybe they've got a three-step process they like to talk people through or a particular model they always use and apply to every question that they're asked Um, and it made me think actually that's something we can all do we can all say you know okay this is the model I'm always going to use if I'm asked a question because yes in our heads we've got 10 different ways of dealing with anxiety depending on the presentation of our client and I hmm. think that's why we struggle sometimes because you're asked, what's your tips for dealing with anxiety? <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. And your head just goes, well, yeah. it depends. How old's the person? Um, are they interested in, in Star Wars? Um, <laughs> and you start kind of going off and spiraling. But actually, if you've decided beforehand, I'm going to use this process that works for the majority of people that I see. Um, and these are the ways I'm going to describe it then you can make that fit in most circumstances. Yeah, I and mean, it doesn't happen by accident. Like you, you've, just, you've just illustrated the prep you should do. You know, you know I think and politicians will do it, um, people from think tanks will do it, charities will do it. They'll be invited on for a topic, of course, but they all thought, right, what, am I, what is my passing shot here? Like, look, mm. if you do anything, you know, this is about you know, having conversations with people, whatever advice you want to dispense with, but you just distill it down. You, you you take out all the all the jargon and the the complexities of of psychology and treatments or whatever else. You can say I don't know what I'm talking about, but you're taking away all that stuff and making it easy and relatable. And then you can engage in the conversation. You can answer the questions, but all the while you're getting that across. Hmm. So we've talked mostly about examples when psychologists or therapists might be called in to give like an expert comment. But sometimes, you know, we might have ideas that we want to pitch ourselves to the media. What makes a good story that a journalist would bother with? I think um, I think your first pause of call is, is it new? So, you know, we are still nevertheless in the news and current affairs business. So, um, and that doesn't mean it has to be an entirely new topic. I mean, every topic's been trodden on hasn't it we don't we're not looking for a new condition that, that is going underreported. but is it new is it is there new data available is this an observation made by a certain hospital uh is this a growing problem um is it representative is it happening across the board um that's the first and for you know the first thing i think if you, if you lack that what we call a, t- a new line a top line um, that first sentence that you write in that introduction, which sums up the story in one sentence, uh, then we're kind of struggling. It's okay, because if you don't have the top line, you can sort of say, right, are we just going to do a special on this? So it's not a news thing. We're going to do a program special on anxiety. But we have, the, we have these conversations all the time where in an editorial meeting, we say, like, okay, so you know, we're looking at how like, you know, like anxiety is like, really shot up with young people. We're like, it's like, it sounds stone cold. We're like, what's new about this? This has been happening for a while, and there's caveats to it. There's more reporting, whatever else, you know. 
the world that people are living living in anyway. But we've covered this extensively. So if you have the new element, that's good. Uh, and then you can sort of, after that, there are kind of what we need to do. I know there are difficulties for psychologists, but when you need the case study, you need that identifiable element for the audience. So you can have an expert doctor talking about, I don't know, this new, you know, a, a, a spike in anxiety cases across the UK. You can have hospitals saying, yes, it's absolutely bad. You can have a psychologist saying, here's what we you know, here are some top tips. But it is nothing, in my view, without, you know, 17-year-old Sarah who can't leave the house or Sam who's 24 and he's, he's, you know, he's never really recovered since the love of his life left him, um, you know, or whatever else, you know, they're there. Those are the things where you start to pull on heartstrings. You start to pull people in. And often the, the case study is the most difficult bit for the for obvious reasons. So, yeah, yeah. But is that something that, you know, if you've got an idea, you need to pitch it with a case study or is that something the journalists will go off and find if they the, like the, the journalists story? would go off and find, I imagine. I think, you know, if if I was talking to a charity, then I would say to the charity, okay, is there anyone you can recommend that would be target for us, you know, sort of 16 to 24, who's afflicted by this, you know, and I would I have no qualms in asking that because I'll have an existing trusting relationship with them. Um, but there are layers to what you pitch to a journalist. You know, I think if you are a qualified psychologist who is established and you're getting in touch with a journalist for, with a tip or a suggestion, then that's fine. You can just send the email, make the introduction, say, look, I think this is a thing. Here is why I think it's a thing. My, my, you know, my take on it is this. What do you think? You know, it's a two-way thing. You're not just sort of getting up from scratch. Um, of course, it's a bonus when you say, look, I've, I've, I know this is unlikely, but you know, this would be nice. It's, I'm dealing with this, you know, say, non-epileptic seizures, there's a school that's seen this going up. I've checked it out. They're happening more broadly. The family of one of the girls affected by this is willing to talk about it to raise awareness. That is the golden egg. You're like, right, okay. And I'm thinking, right, there's all you've already, you're vouching for them. You know, we're not, we're going in here. We've, of course, we then do all the safeguarding necessary, making sure that, you know, they're able to give informed consent, duty of care beyond broadcast, you know. So there's, there's, it is a complex area, but for me, it's worth delaying the story and putting in all that legwork so then we can all put out a piece we're proud, we're proud of. Mm. Um, but that that's the kind of golden egg. But I think, you know, if you're feeling comfortable getting in touch with journalists with issues or whatever else you think need looking at, then it's the journalist's prerogative to either investigate um, or look into further. Mm. And it sounds like remembering that journalists are humans and you can have a two-way dialogue with them. Yeah, I mean, transaction. <laughs> it's not you're not on the record, like from the off. If you feel the need to kind of, you know, you can say, "Look, I just, I just want to sort of, I want to be off the record." But or you say, "Look, I'm, t- I'm calling in confidence, but I'm just seeing this. I'm aware of the work you've done previously for Newsnight, or you know, uh, the Times, or whoever you're talking to." And you're sort of saying, "Look, I've, you know, I, I've seen you've done this thread before. I'm seeing this. I think there's more to be done on it because." we are letting young people down because of this or whatever else, you know, you're going to command our attention. It's going to be like, great. You know, thanks for calling me. You know, what do you think of this? And it might be that um, I'd say six out of 10, six, seven out of 10 times, you might be like, okay, I don't think it's quite there yet. I think it's a good issue, but I don't think it's anything new. Forgive me for being rude. Or can we go, can we agree to chat in a couple of weeks? I'll go look at it as well. Um, I've got some contacts here. I'll speak to the BPS, see what's going on there. Let's touch base. Um, and then the other, you know, the rest of them will just be like, great, let's go. But those are in, in the minority. But it's a starting point. It's that little spark. Mm. And you're right. We're not, we are human beings. I mean, I, I don't know what you've made since meeting me, but we're not, you know, like we're not in it to stitch people up. Of course, you have to be careful when talking to journalists. Like if you were to say to me on the phone, um, if we were to go and record something and someone at a hospital, this is an extreme example, but it's making the point, a hospital member of staff sort of said that there'd been sort of historical abuse here, but we don't really talk about that, whatever else. Then you're sort of, you're, you know, your prerogative is to kind of, you're obliged to investigate that or, you know, you're then weighing up 
you know how far you can go with that. But on the whole, we do, you know, it's an agreement, it's a transaction. We're like, right, what what are we talking about here? So what what's the issue as you see it? How about I go away and do this? I always look to bring buy, you know, win buy-in on, on on how I investigate things. You know, if it's going to be a if there's going to be any holding to account in, in psychological stories, it's going to be with policymakers or you know, or if or if a hospital or trust or whatever else has let people down, or you know, then it might be the case. But if you were to talk as a whistleblower or a tip-off or whatever else, it's still just a conversation that stays on the phone or in person. Yeah, because I imagine that kind of exposing what an idiot Dr. Rosie Gilderthorpe is is not actually very newsworthy, <laughs> apart from anything else. You're being, there you go again, you're just like hammering yourself. <laughs> well, yeah, I mean, it's not, hopefully it's not newsworthy. But what I mean is just there would be no, nothing in it for a journalist to try and stitch you up. They're not trying to exactly right. Yeah, exactly right. You know, like think about all the scandals over the years and how they come about. And it's, it's, you know, you look at the, you know, the the Rotherham rape crisis or, you know, when all of a sudden you're sort of, uh, you know, or you're sort of looking at the phone hacking or, um, I've watched that documentary on Larry Nasser, you know, the, one of the worst rapists you've ever seen. It comes from, people you know alleged victims coming forward or you know and, and you sort of build the thread from there or people saying look you need to look at this as an issue then the digging goes in it's not from someone who's just looking to make that introductory phone call again i use an extreme example but you know we're talking it's the level of just highlighting an issue why you feel strongly about it can you do anything about it mm. and sort of going from there like well, well why what have you done is this anything to do with you i could look into it you know it's just so, yeah, relax. It sounds important to speak to the right person, to know something about a journalist that you're going to approach and make sure it's like their area of interest. How would you find out who's interested in what? Google. So, you know, if you're looking at... Give me an example, help me, because, my, again, my, my, my psychological knowledge reserves are running dry. So give me like a, a mock issue. Okay, well, say I uh, wanted to do a piece about mother and baby units. I didn't think that there was enough psychological support in a particular mother and baby unit. How would I find out what journalist might be interested in a story like that? So I do maternity, I'm Googling it now, mental health, Google search, and I go to the top of Google and I type in news maternity mental health. Another lockdown would be detrimental to the mental health of others like me, Telegraph. So I'm going on the Telegraph and there'll be a byline at the top of the article. So here, this looks like a first person piece by Hattie Gladwell. So that's the first one. It's a first person piece when I became pregnant last summer and the difficulties she faced. So there's one, she'll be findable on social media. Then you go to the second one, there's an L article here. Uh, Metro, in focus, how lockdown has changed uh, from, from mums, Polly Peacock Goodwin. Byline at the top of the article. There could be blogs on it. There could be longer reads. There might be a BBC article. Um, there might be something on YouTube. There's loads out there. And some because everything is so well trodden, someone at some point will have covered it. And then you get in touch with that person, and they might not be interested. Slash you know, be able to do it, but they'll be able to point you in the direction of someone who can or will say, actually, have you tried speaking to so-and-so? Or, you know, that th- this could be a goer. But any journalist, I think, you know, if I was to take a call from a psychologist, I'd be listening. Mm. I'd, be, you know, I'd be all ears. You're not commercially biased. You're not from a, from a PR agency. You know, you are talking as a, you know, an independent, conscientious medical professional. So I'd be all ears. Yeah, that really interested me, actually, when you mentioned it on the training that you take a lot of calls from PR agents oh. who just kind of spam you <laughs> with stuff. Um, yeah, I wasn't aware of, of that sort of layer to the media system at all. It's, it's total. I mean, like, unless you have magazines looking for features or, or whatever else, I cannot imagine in broadcast, at least, where, I mean, I get, I even get experts offered to me, but they do it in such an uh, presumptive way. It's like, you know, this morning we can offer at 9am uh, Rosie Gildenthorpe, you know, um, she's she's been published here before, any bids just send our way. And you're like, 
what what's the story why are you contacting me about this uh, mm-hmm. some are absolutely atrocious um the most annoying ones are the ones that follow up with phone calls like you get my email about you know nine out of ten dogs hate their owners it's according to a survey of 50 dogs you know i'm being facetious but they, they are mind-numbingly daft and just a waste of time and my email inbox is it probably makes up three quarters of my email inbox wow and I've, I've got friends who are print journalists who say exactly the same thing yeah. um so anybody listening to this who is thinking about hiring a pr company for whatever reason don't i would say not <laughs> um, not until you've tried your own uh, yeah. found your own voice i, I mean i i'm from my perspective, I can't talk about, you know, someone with a business or trying to get something off the ground. Um, but it's, you know, some PR firms do help. They are proactive. And if, if we're sort of dealing with, I remember we did a story on dating apps. There was like a firm that represented some of the dating apps and they, they were helpful with getting us data and everything else, but it was still very commercially biased, you know, in terms of what they were giving us. It was quite narrow. It wasn't broad market stuff. Some are helpful. Uh, but it's usually sort of in the public sector trying to sort of ease things up. Or if you're dealing with someone high profile, then they're sort mm. of trying to make them available, switch here, they're quite switched on. But on the whole, I just, you know, I don't want to sort of slag off a whole industry, but I just, I am frustrated with the amount of hot air I get on a daily basis. And, you know, we do need um, press departments for sure. And they are, some are brilliant in, in, you know, we'd be nowhere without them. They facilitate access engagement everything else but like pr you know pr agencies it's it's got to be a sort of a the clap the stars have to align for it to be a mutually beneficial engagement really mm. yeah and i think i hear quite often of people starting out with their business maybe their private practice or maybe they're adding something else into their business and they kind of get taken in for paying thousands of pounds a month for a company that will promote them but the company doesn't understand their message and what drives their business and what makes it different. And so it, it's spam, basically. It's infuriating. It doesn't really get them anywhere. Whereas actually a few human conversations um, with people like your good self, where they can actually you know, shape what they want to say and have that kind of two-way conversation would probably go a lot further. I think so. I think, you know, like, I think in some um, plenty of cases an unnecessary middleman you know like you are coming from it with an insider knowledge and perspective of it you can say look you know you're not looking to get a direct commercial return on this so why bother you know let's say look this is this is this is a big deal can you do anything with this or can you point in the direction of someone who can it's it's not going away there's more to be done and then you sort of offer the story and make yourself central to it you know and sort of and go from there and it's, it, you can make a difference there are you know whether it's simply raising awareness millions of people watch things on air and online um, and you go to the other end of the spectrum and you can change policy you can mm-hmm. make it to parliament and that happens you know just through good journalism and good collaborative effort and you can be a, you can be a part of something huge yeah i mean i suppose that is the top line isn't it that's if, if you want to make a big difference you're going to have to engage with this stuff and it's worth it. Um, so that's the most important message. I've got a slightly, I've realised I've taken up loads of your time. Um, I'm, I'm off, I told you, it's fine. You want to take up loads of your holiday time. <laughs> All right, I, I should be drunk by now. <laughs> yeah, well, thank you for staying relatively sober I <laughs> um, for this interview. Um, but I, I do have um, a kind of stupid question um, before we finish. No such thing. Which might actually be really useful to the people listening to this. Have, have you come across any amusing or um, interesting routines people go through to try and calm their voices down before radio or TV that you don't mind sharing? Um, my boss, she, when she read the news, she used to take off her shoes. So she would go and sit in the booth and it would just ground her and that would kind of take the edge off. Um, I remember in, uh, a lot of people, and this is, this is probably why there aren't too many kind of, this is a bit of a boring answer, but a lot of people just re- rehearse. And they, they, when you walk into a newsroom, you see like journalists tapping away on the keyboard. 
they're reading it out loud. So if they're doing a script, they're going like, Rosie Gilderthorpe, she said this, but actually the government says she's wrong, da 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 and I'm thinking, no, I'm deleting that because I wouldn't something I wouldn't say, but you're, you're talking out loud all the time, all the time, all the time. So when you go and say something out loud, you're not going to stumble on it. Or if you're doing something, if you're appearing on telly, so you're not going to be, you know, people like you aren't going to be using a script. It's just rehearsing it. It's looking yourself in the mirror, doing all the pauses. It's not just what you're saying. You're even, you're, it's a performance. So that'd be the central thing I see people do. Otherwise, uh, I don't know. I, go, I mean, I, I once stuck my arms in the air and just like, that's what I tell people to do as well. Like go into the loo, stick your arms in the air. If you can make a noise, just do it. Ah, ah, you know, just, just don't, you stop feeling awkward straight away. And I, that really helps. And if that's the difference between you being a bit cold going in because you're not warm and you're a bit warmer, then someone asks you a normal question, you're like, oh, uh, yeah, so let me just go ahead and answer that question. I feel I feel already feel more relaxed. I've just danced around like a monkey in the toilet. It's just that, that would be my yeah. So monkey and shoes off are the only things I can point off. And I won't bore you with it, but the people listening to this are going to be like, oh yes, polyvagal theory that tells us that that would be useful. <laughs> good scientific reasons that things would be helpful. Right. Maybe I know more than I realise. Yeah, you do. It's yeah. gone in. It went in somewhere. Right. It did, yeah. It did. Brilliant. Well, thank you so much, James. You've shared a lot of value with us. And Is I know right? a lot of people are going to be thinking, right, I want to I want to get into this media stuff now. So if they do fancy getting into the media world and they want to connect with you, where is the best place they can do that? So my DMs are open on Twitter. So I'm at J-A-M Waterhouse. James Waterhouse was taken. Um, or you can email me at james.waterhouse at bbc.co.uk. Um, and, uh, and yeah, if you want to, if you're interested in a story, email me. If you're interested in getting taught the basic steps or have any questions, Twitter DM me uh, and I'll try help. Planning on launching something new? Hoping to reach more people and build a business that lets you live your values while avoiding burnout? Then you need to download my cheat sheet, 14 Steps to a Simple Launch. It's a foolproof process to make sure you develop your project with the people you want to help and then get it in front of as many of them as possible. It's totally free and you can find it at psychologist.drosie.co.uk. I'll put the link in the show notes.